Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Around 400 BC, a great swathe of Western Europe from Ireland to southern Russia was peopled by one civilization. Perched on the northwestern fringe of this vast Iron Age culture were the British, who shared many of the religious, artistic and social customs of their European neighbours. These customs were Celtic, and those who made up this civilization were the Celts. The Greek historians who studied and recorded the Celts' way of life considered them to be one of the four great barbarian peoples of the world. The Romans wrote vivid accounts of Celtic rituals, including the practice of human sacrifice provided, presided over by Druids, and the tradition of decapitating their enemies and turning their heads into drinking vessels. But it seems that their apparent lust for violence was accompanied by a love of poetry and beautiful art. How far should we trust written sources of the classical historians in their writings on the Celts? And what can we learn from the archaeological remains that have been discovered in this country? With me to discuss the Celts in Britain are Barry Cunliffe, Professor of European Archaeology at Oxford University and author of, among others, Facing the Ocean, Alistair Moffat, writer and historian and author of The Sea Kingdoms, The Story of Celtic Britain and Ireland, and Miranda Aldhurst-Green, Professor of Archaeology at the University of Wales, Newport, and author of of dying for the gods. Barry Cunliffe, let's start at the beginning. What do we mean by the term Celts, and where did that term itself, that name, come from? Well, I think w what we've got to do is to realise that uh, the term Celt means something different every time it's used, really. Um, and if we start from the beginning, the first time we see the word Celt used, it's being used by the Greeks uh, to describe barbarians in northwest Europe, basically. What, what age what date are we Greeks about the 5th, 4th centuries BC. Yeah. Um, um, they're, they're saying that uh, those people up there are, are barbarians, they're different from the ones in Africa, they're different from the ones uh, in, in the Persia. east, so let's call them Celts. So it's a general term for northern barbarians. And so then, just think, does Celt mean anything? Does the Greek word Celt, or does it, it mean anything? It can, it, it, it's variously interpreted, but it, it probably just means the sort of other peoples or some, right. something of that sort. It's very difficult to get at that one. Um, and what... When when we come on a bit later, um, people like um, Julius Caesar are being a bit more specific. They're saying in Gaul there are people who call themselves Celts, and they actually, he gives some geography, they live more or less between the um, Garonne-Gironde um, axis and, and the Seine, so they're sort of central Gaulish. But what no one ever does is to say that people who live in Britain are called Celts. Um, what, they, what we can say is that, there, uh, as you said in your introduction, there is this... Um, shared belief system and shared value system over large slabs of Europe from, well, from the east of Europe right across to, to Ireland. Um, and languages um, are similar across those areas. But we can't say that every one of those groups was called Celt. When the Greeks called them one of the four great barbarians, or Persians, African, what did they mean by the term barbarians? Is this just non-Greek or non-Roman? Uh, did, did it take us any further? Because as we're going to discover, they're far from barbaric in the normal painted savage sense, although the normal painted savage comes into the descriptions of them. Indeed. Um, no, I think what the Greeks were meaning were people who didn't speak Greek, yeah. people who made these uh, un unrecognisable sounds like ba, ba, ba. It's a derogatory term. People who are other than us, basically. And that's, that's what we get the whole time in the classical writers, the Greek and Roman writers. It's the stereotype of the other. 
So, so um, we are stable, civilized people, um, uh, ordered people. They are the opposite. Um, they are unstable. There is no order there, um, and, and and so on. So, so it's it's like a caricature. Um, what the classical writers tell us is the caricature of the Celts, but like all caricatures, there is an element of truth in it. So up there, meaning up from Greek and Rome, I mean, northern Europe, this, the, the, in northern, northwestern Europe, there are these people called... But we're not talking about a unified lot. We're talking about lots of different tribes, aren't we? Yes, we're talking about a, a very large number of different tribes, hundreds of different tribes, and we know the names of some of these different tribes. Uh, and some are more like each other than others. Uh, but uh, Celt is a good general purpose term for lumping them all together and saying something of value um, about the similarity of people up there north of the Alps. Miranda Althaus-Green, Barry Cunliffe said that, uh, as referred to the um, dispute it may be or difficult it may be about referring easily to the British as Celts. Could you develop that? Yes, I think so. I think what Barry's getting at is something which is, is very true and that is that if we look at the classical writers... Um, of whom about sort of 30 or 40, you might mention uh, the, Britain, the ancient Britons, um, there is no source which actually mentions the Britons as Celts. I mean, Caesar, for example, writing in the mid-first century BC, calls them Britanni. They're never called Celts. Caesar does say that he noticed great similarities of attitude and customs uh, between the southeast British and the Gauls, but that's as far as we get in terms of getting close to being able to call the Britons Celts. So there is this problem. People who are arguing against the use of the term Celts are worried that by calling Britons Celts and everybody else Celts in Europe, you're kind of ironing out differences and getting away from the fact that there's tremendous regional diversity in Europe from about the 5th century BC, or in fact, of course, even earlier. But there are so many differences that um, some people wonder whether it's at all useful to use this blanket term because it is in a sense, homogenising the past. And I think that's what causes the problem. The other thing about calling Britons Celts is that that opens the way for people who wish to make a direct link between past Celts and present Celts. Because the term Celtic is used for uh, people living on the western periphery in Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall and so on, and because Celtic languages are, are known about and people identify themselves as Celts you know, living in these peripheries now... It's easy then to elide backwards to say, oh, yes, the British Celts, they were there in the Iron Age. They're the same Celts as the Welsh and the Irish and the Scottish now. And that, of course, is nonsense. Um, but the, the use of that blanket term tends to make that kind of homogenising process, which I think is, is academically you know, a bit suspect. Well, um, where does that take us then? I mean, are we talking now of the British... When I say British Celts, am I talking incorrectly? Or am I talking about a degree of difference too far, as it were, the, the Finch that became a non-Finch in Darwinian sense. You, you hop over the channel and suddenly they're having this much the same sort of traditions and we find very similar this, that and the other, but they're not Celts. The, uh, because Caesar and the other 39 uh, uh, mm. classical writers don't call them Celts, they are not Celts. I mean, do we stop the discussion and start talking about something else? Or can we still use the word Celtic to get us into this? Can you briefly, because Alistair is champing to get in. Yes. <laughs> Moffat, I mean, I, all of your... I mean, <laughs> yeah, fine. I, I think that the, the term can be used. I think we need to be sure of what we're talking about. We need to be sure of our definitions. I think it's fine to use the term Celt for 
the Iron Age past and even for Iron Age Britain, as long as we know what we're saying. What I think we do need to be clear about is that if we're using the term Celt for the Iron Age past in Britain, that if we're using the same term to discuss um, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st century identity in the north and west of Europe, we're not necessarily talking about the same thing. Well, I, I mean, this programme rarely comes as close to home as the 18th, 19th, 20th Those are very, very difficult waters for us to get into. Can we just flip back 2,000 years where we're much more comfortable? Uh, Alistair, um, what is your, um, well, not reaction, but what's your view on this British cult thing? I, what I want to do is to clear up a sort of platform, because so, sure. we're going to discuss the British cult, so we need to call them something else, but talk about what was going on then around the turn of the millennium from 2300 BC to 2300 AD, that kind of thing. I mean, I'd be happy to call them hobbits or Daleks <laughs> or Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. I don't really care. But what I think is going on here is a very interesting historical three-card trick. Um, I've looked at 2,500 years of Celtic history in Britain and Ireland, and basically, in a rapid sketch, the pattern is dead straightforward. Military defeat, colonisation, marginalisation, pastiche, led by Walter Scott, a fellow borderer, uh, shortbread tins, tartan and all the rest of it, and now, hey, guys, we don't exist. So that's what's going on, it seems to me. Uh, it's a more subtle removal of our history than in the past, but it's a removal nonetheless. And Miranda's contention that to talk of British Celts in you know, 1 AD and 2001 AD as being unconnected and characterising that as nonsense, <laughs> I think is amazing, frankly. Um, of course they're Celts. Of course they share a cultural coherence all down the west of Britain. The most important and interesting thing, I think, from the point of view, my point of view in this discussion, is that these languages still exist. They don't exist anywhere else in Europe. Celt-Iberian, Lepontic and Gaulish, all these European Celtic languages have died. They're still alive here. Related languages are still alive here. The Scottish, Gaelic, the Irish, Gaelic, the Welsh. Welsh, Manx and Cornish. And they hold inside them two and a half thousand years of history. There's no question about that. They're the most important surviving artefact, if you like. Uh, and the difficulty, of course, is that so few people who claim that the Celts don't exist don't understand these languages. They don't read them, they haven't learned them, and so on. So in a way, it's easy to claim that. So I, I, I would rather, as you say, get over that... <laughs> Put it to one side. We'll call them hobbits or whatever you like. No, 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 uh, no, no I'm not. I'm not onto hobbits. So let's let's <laughs> <do it. laughs> call them Britons. But the, my, my point is dead straightforward. These peoples have a, a great deal in common. Uh, not only their languages, not only their geography, but also their history. And that history has had a great deal in common with itself. I suspect for a very long time. Would you like um, to come back on that brief? Either of you? I'd briefly? quite like no. to come back on language yeah. because um, I. I I think I, sh I share your, your view on this, that um, the people who speak a common language have got a common uh, are likely to have a common identity, so I'm very happy with that. But um, we talk about the Celtic languages in the West. We've got to remember what we're talking about. We're talking about a concept that developed in 1700 by the director of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. We're not talking about anything uh, of, of reality. He could have called the languages uh, of the West, he could have called them Atlantic, which I think we would have done now, rather than Celtic. Mm. He only called them Celtic because he was making a preconceived jump. Um, and we call them Celtic now. Um, fine. 
they are languages which were spoken by the Celts in, in Central Gaul. So I've got no problem with that. But we, we just have to be slightly careful mm. about um, how we use our arguments. I'm, I don't disagree with you at all. Um, but you, but, can see uh, what, you, you can see where these post-imperial jitters oh, oh, come sure, from. Oh, sure, I mean, sure, sure, I can know, indeed. Here we are, yeah. you know, having our history taken, our name taken yep, away from yep, us. Yep. Uh, no, thank you. Yep. I won't accept. No, no I, I would go back to you know, the point we started with, that, that um, the Celts are constantly being uh, reinvented um, and, and remodelled. And what we have now in, in our, our concept of Atlantic Atlantic Celts uh, is is the most recent remodelling of a concept that started um, thousand uh, thousand years BC. Can, can I, I just sorry. yeah, Marianne, Can I just move you? Well, just say what you want, then I'll ask my question. I was just going to say a little bit about language because I mean one of the one of the problems about languages is that it's difficult to trace them back into prehistory. Uh, but we do have um, sets of place names normally uh, encapsulated in Roman writings and geographies and so on, which do show that over this vast swathe of northern Europe, there are commonalities of place names which you get popping up again and again, whether you're in Ireland, whether you're in Scotland, whether you're in, in Gaul or Eastern Europe or even in parts of Turkey. Um, places like the Nemeton names, Nemeton meaning sanctuary or sacred place, Briga, Dunum, these are fortified places. These you do find in Spain, in France, in, in, in Eastern Europe and so on. And, and that is... In, and in Cumberland, indeed. And, in, and, and that, of course, is, is a very unifying thing. So, I mean, in a way, um, we, we can take language backwards. What we can't do, necessarily, is to say a great deal about what people were speaking in the 5th century BC. We just don't really have the evidence. OK, we're going to stop that for a moment, if you don't mind. Can I just, before, just getting, uh, finishing off this first part about the Celts, uh, Miranda, and then briefly... There is, we're going to come to sort of rather caricature, a stereotypical descriptions we may think of them. But this, one of the things that interested me, uh, I might have learnt it at school or something, but I, until I went back I didn't really, is the technological uh, authority that they had. The, they were talking about people who worked wrought iron, which was difficult to work, uh, and, uh, and so on. The technological basis of their society um, gives them, in my view, a kind of force that they stop being scavenging, tri scavenging tri tribes, just jumping on horses every ten seconds. They are tremendously sophisticated in terms of the technology, both in terms of iron and wrought iron. Um, and in terms of art styles. And art is, I think, one of the most important keys to trying to get a handle on um, unified um, groups of people. The, the, the art styles, the, the, the techniques of working bronze and iron are absolutely superb, even noted by the Romans as being absolutely second to none. Yeah, but I'd just like to continue this, the technology. We'll come to that in a minute. This, uh, uh, Alistair, and about, this, this does put a different cast on them. If you have a technology, if you have to cut down all this woodland, you have to make all this stuff, you have very, very highly skilled people, you have to have settlements in a, in a very strong way. This is where the stuff is made, you, uh, and so on. It, it, it's a different... It, for many people listening, I think, well... Well, as I did, vaguely unaware of all that. Oh, there's no doubt it's a sophisticated <coughs> culture, and I think it's that sophistication in the production of the items that Miranda mentioned which actually <laughs> drives the expansion uh, and the spread of these languages, in my view. Um, I think that Celtic languages spread through trade, mm. through the, the, the fact that these people who spoke these languages in Central Europe had the grip of this technology and were able to take with it their language. I mean, it's a process of acculturation, if you like, that goes on. I mean, I guess a good analogy is the Internet. 
Um, in, I remember a piece in The Independent a couple of years ago where Hamish McRae talked about English being driven by the Internet. And I think, to a degree, chaotic languages in Europe were driven by this metal technology, which was so advanced. I mean, they made stunning weapons. I mean, what's the slashing sword called? The Spatha and so on, which has a razor edge to it because they can hone it to an amazing sharpness. Now, if you're a cavalry warrior and you've got a slashing sword that will mm. cut like a razor, well, you want one. Well, there's masses of illustrations of swords in your books, Barry, aren't there, which are wonderful. Yeah. Can, can I just take up Alistair's yes, point and come please. back to the swords in a moment? Um, absolutely right. I, I would argue that, that the Celtic language evolved um, as very much a lingua franca for trade and exchange, and, and not just trade and exchange of materials, but of ideas and technologies and belief systems. And that, that's why uh, the language as, as a unifier has got to be seen alongside um, technology and belief systems. Can we just stick with the technology? Yeah, OK, technology. One thing that I love of Celtic work is the barrel. Um, now, just a little bit of technology. Uh, to be able to shrink um, uh, an iron hoop onto a barrel is, is a pretty gee whiz bit of technology, and to be able to do that onto a spoked wheel... And they could do that um, to perfection as far back as the 6th century BC. Um, and, and the chances are that a thing like the barrel was actually invented by the Celts. Yes. Now, we have... Let's... Can we have a sort of general agreement that we'll call the British Celts the British Celts? We'll call them the British Celts. Is that around the table? Do we have a little consensus here? Absolutely. Or, all right, all right. We have one vote <laughs> for, one... Uh, and we have an all right, <laughs> kind of bit of a shake of a head, mm. and one well, for... Mine's got inverted commas around it. Well, we'll call them British Celts. British and Celts. Absolutely. Okay. Right, all right. Now, we're talking about tribal lives here in, this, in, in, in these islands, aren't we, Barry Cunliffe? Can you give us some idea of the shape and size? of the tribes? We only know about the tribes uh, as tribes, really, uh, in the first, from the first century BC, uh, because it's then that they begin to mint coins and we can find their tribal names and um, plot the distributions and find the capitals. And they were, at that stage, really quite small. Um, Colchester, for example, uh, capital of um, one of the tribes, Catavalloni, uh, tribe? um, more or less Essex and into Hertfordshire. The Atribate is based on Silchester, pretty well Hampshire with a bit of Berkshire thrown in. It's that sort of thing. What, what is particularly interesting, I think, is that many of these tribes uh, at that stage map on more or less to the English county. I'm not suggesting continuity, mm. but that there is, uh, there is a unit of, of government there that well, makes what sense. What size are we talking about, Barry? Are we talking about 400 people, 4,000 people, 40 people? What we very, doing? very difficult to say. If we just take population as a whole, I think we've underestimated population of the island as a whole, and, and many of us now would think perhaps um, you know, two million uh, in the Iron Age is not at all excessive. Mm. So we might be talking about tens of thousands of, in some of these slightly larger tribal groups like the Catavalloni. And the hierarchical structure, was it, uh, did we have the three-class system, as it were? Um, we can get at this through the archaeology to some extent. If you look at the burials uh, in the southeast of Britain, you can see that there are kingly burials, you can see that there are rich, rich burials, which might be sort of elite chiefdom burials, and then you can see those lower down uh, with just mirrors or swords in, and those lower down still. You can recognise in the burial those evidence... those didn't even get in. The, <laughs> those who are scattered to the winds, yeah. Uh, left where they literally, fell. Literally scattered <laughs> to the <lot>. winds. <laughs> but, you know... 
But four or five sort of grades you can recognise in the archaeological evidence. So this is likely to be a reflection of, of a, a fairly structured society. Mm. And, and the Roman writers, um, looking back on this period, talk about kings and warring kings and so on. And some of these people actually do call themselves kings on the coins. One, one, one thing that struck me about Caesar's remarks, uh, Miranda Ross Green, was that he said common folk commit themselves in slavery to the nobles. And, and one of the three great exports of the British, uh, um, British guards were dogs, slaves and wool, wool and cloaks. Um, so did he find that unusual that common folk committed themselves to sl- in slavery to the nobles? Was this an unusual thing he found among the British guards? Or? I think Caesar is probably talking from the perspective of being um, you know, a patrician Roman. And clearly... Um, he belonged to a slave-owning society, that of Rome, and when he came to Britain, he found, and when he came to Gaul, he found um, a strictly hierarchical society where anybody who counted were, you know, they were the knights or the druids or the craftsmen, but everybody else was in an almost sort of serf-like state. And I think he found that was, that, that was strange. Um, interestingly, archaeologically, we've got quite a lot of evidence for slave ownership. We have gang chains, for example, from late Iron Age sites, um, in North Wales, in, in South East Britain. Gang, slave gang chains, you know, iron chains um, for right. five or six people at a time. So the to chain be... gang goes back to absolutely, the... Absolutely, absolutely. Working a... for the chain gang. Indeed. Seeing um, that in Celtic. Yep. <laughs> and, and we actually have a wonderful, pic- a wonderful picture um, from the National Museum where um, Cardiff students were put into one of the slave gang chains uh, to see how they actually Correct. worked in operation. Uh, very good. Um, and it was very interesting to find how immediately you're in a gang chain, your head goes down, you you become a kind of non-person. You become just a just 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 a, a body, as it were. Um, and it's unbelievable how defeated, how humiliated being in a gang chain makes you, because you have to behave like everybody else. You have to be in exactly the same position as everybody else. And that kind of gang chain effect, I think, you're also finding in some of the. Iron Age bog bodies that you get in Northern Europe, including Britain, with ropes around their necks. Again, it's a, it's a humiliation thing. And so this idea of degradation, slavery, contempt, is something which I think we can find in the material culture and Caesar. Going from heads down to heads off, Alistair Moffat, the, the, there was a great culture of decapitation in battle. Uh, one of the first things, well, not one of the first things, but one of the things the Roman writers uh, observed that after great battles, when the Celts, the Gaulish Celts, swept in, they decapitated their enemies, they scoured the skulls, they gilded them sometimes, turned them into, they put them in fences to ward off their enemies' ghost skulls, and so on. What was that all about, and, and how did it fit in with the, the, the druidical aspect of the religion? I think the reason that they decapitated their enemies was somehow to capture something of their soul, to, to possess them absolutely. And as you say, many of these heads... They thought that the head contained the soul. Yes, I mean, and, and many of these heads are preserved in oil and so on, and there are tales of, of Celtic chieftains refusing to give up a head, the head of a, a defeated warrior for many pounds of gold and so on. It's not something that's exclusive to Celtic society. The Vikings did this too. Um, and there are stories of uh, warriors right into the Middle Ages in the north of Scotland tying heads to their saddles uh, and so on to show that they, they, they defeated enemies. Um, so I think it was obviously uh, a trophy thing. In terms of these fences that you talk about, these uh, what one writer's called ghost fences, where uh, priests would use skulls as a, a, a method of warding off or keeping out uh, difficult or evil things. Um, that still continues as a tradition. Uh, every Halloween, kids make turnip lanterns. 
pumpkins and turnips, Absolutely. yeah, sure. And they're, they're, they're druidical skulls, in my view, a memory of that, at least. Can we trace back that heads to go into the Celtic religion? The Dru- I was using it as an entry point for that as well. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, people think, uh, uh, oh, the Druids, big knives, circles, stabbing, sacrifice. That seems to be sort of right as well, doesn't it? Well, there are interesting relics of this. I mean, one of the, the Druids came up um, in the 7th century at the Synod of Whitby, amazingly, which was organised to discuss the correct dating for Easter, the Celtic dating versus the Roman dating. And, uh, Rome 1. Exactly, Rome 1. Uh, one of the things they also argued about was the tonsure, the monkish tonsure. Yeah. And they Rome wanted, 1 again. And Rome 1 again, because they wanted the one that imitated the crown of thorns, as mm. it were. You know, the, but yeah, the, but the, to go back but to no, the no, Druid... No, let me finish this point, because yeah. the, 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 the Celtic tonsure <coughs> has been shown to have been how the Druids looked. Oh, really? um, because it was cut from ear to ear over the crown of the head and shaved at the front with long hair at the back. And that's why they rejected it, because it was a pungent whiff of the pagan past. And indeed but there is um, a representation of the 3rd century BC from Bohemia showing somebody with that um, Celtic tonsia. So this is what these men looked like? Yeah, but, but I don't think we should take um, you know, the Druids as all blood and thunder and all heads being cut because off Caesar everywhere. Caesar gave them great authority, didn't he? He said they <coughs> con- they, the laws and, and, and settle disputes yeah. and move across tribal boundaries mm. and teach young people and astronomy. And he's, talking about, he's talking about teachers and, and leaders yeah. and, and they didn't do military service and they didn't pay taxes. They were special people in the community. Yeah, I think, I think what Caesar does, as, as Miranda was saying earlier, is that he sort of clumps all sorts of ideas together and sort of half understands them and half presents them. And what he's doing with the, the Druids is saying that there are a whole range of, of specialists, sort of vaguely intelligent, judicial, uh, religious specialists. And let's call them all Druids um, and let's say they do all this. What he's probably talking about is a whole range of different functions um, linked to, to different people. Um, but there is this class of, of specialist people. Now, um, w- what seems to me to be the key that, that, that Caesar has got, says in that, that text of his is that um, they are the uh, intermediaries between man or people and, and the gods. And you can't, as an ordinary person, communicate with the gods unless you do it through a druid. Who so they had enormous Sorry. power. Yeah, exactly. But who were the Celtic gods? Uh, and how well, much did the Celts believe in the Celtic gods? Well, uh, again, Caesar. Um, we keep on coming back to Caesar. I wish we had a few more Is good he really sources. reliable? No, 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 no. Um, oh, yeah, no. For, for, uh, he, you've got to interpret Caesar. You've got to try and interpret Caesar. He didn't un- actually understand what all everything he was seeing, nor did he communicate it accurately. It, I always think of Caesar's texts being rather like... Um, perhaps the letters written by the wife of a missionary in Africa to a maiden aunt back at home. You know, it goes through all these black boxes so that what she is observing and what she is communicating are two entirely different things. Um, but there are grains of truth in season. That's what we've got to get at. But um, this, this intermediary between, the ma- between people and the gods is very important. And Caesar says, and I do believe this, that... that um, uh, and the Druids can excommunicate you virtually and make you unclean uh, because they won't let you communicate with the gods. And if they do that, you're actually outside society. So it's very powerful. Yeah, and they, they won't let you come to sacrifices, which That's is right. the great punishment. But who are these gods, Alistair? Well, one of the things that the, the Celts do is they climb hills. 
And that's interesting. And on the top of hills, they, they build these enclosures. Um, there's a huge one on top of Eildon Hill North in the borders, which may have enclosed as many as 500 hut stances. And they build fires on these hills. And the place names that Miranda was talking about remembers this. I mean, Tinto Hill in the south of Scotland is from the word chena for fire. Fire Hill is what it means. And they, they built these fires at festival points, at points in the calendar which were important to them as stocksmen and as, as farmers. And these four... Festivals occur, you know, at sensible... I mean, Halloween, if you like, is a, is a memory of one of them, hence the attachment of the town at Lanterns and so on. It's a, a very wispy and hard-to-catch memory. So they climb hills, they, they light fires, and they do a whole range of things, as Barry said. One of the things about the, the, the Celtic priestly class that characterises them is an absolutely prodigious memory. I'll come into that in a minute. I'm still trying to get after these gods. It's, well, it's actually, it's obviously quite difficult to get any gods. So for the third time of asking, you, I'll <laughs> yes. ask I think the, both the literary evidence and the archaeological evidence give us a handle on the Celts as being people who believed in spirits of place. They, they believed in a multiplicity of divinities in all aspects of nature. So there would be sky gods, there would be water gods, there would be mountain gods, there would be fire gods, there would be sun gods. And there's quite a lot of archaeological evidence for this. And one of the most important pieces of archaeological evidence is the veneration of water, shown by the deposition of important, prestigious objects, often military objects, into water, into marshes, rivers, lakes and so on. And this goes on throughout Europe. Often these weapons are ritually broken to send them over into the other world and to generate a force by the breaking. They're then cast into water and sacrifices are made to, to the gods. So, and that, and uh, as Alistair pointed out in his book, uh, Excalibur is a sort of lovely relic of that coming out of the lake and being thrown back into the lake and so on. But what do these gods do? And what if I were a Celt, hmm. what would the gods do? They're interactive. What do, I, what do I get from them? What do they want from me? You, you enter into a kind of contract with the gods... So that Do they you, have names? You, well, we can back project from the Roman period when the Roman period gives us Celtic god names on right, inscriptions. So they've got names. They've got names. Right, right. We don't know how far we can back project those names into, into prehistory. But say, I mean, there is one particular god who's mentioned in classical sources like Lucan, a god called Taranis. He's a thunder god, he's a sun god, he's so a sky god. What do you do for him or him for me? You will probably say to him, um, I want to pray for you. I, I'm very anxious that there'll be a good harvest this year. Um, if I sacrifice this or that animal or even this or that human to you, I will expect in return a good harvest. And yeah. you will also um, indulge in aversion sacrifices. So, for example, if you wanted to make quite sure you weren't going to be defeated in battle, you wanted to ward off something bad happening, you would have um, a sacrifice in anticipation of that event. Very yeah. analysis, yeah. Um Well... Uh, just to follow on what Miranda says, um, we've actually got hard archaeological evidence for this. I, I was excavating some years ago an Iron Age hill fort um, called Danebury down in, in Hampshire, and uh, we found there large numbers of grain storage pits where um, silos, underground silos, where people have stored their seed grain and um, putting it in the realms of the deities of the underworld, the Chthonic deities, for safety in this liminal period between cropping it and sowing it. And then you take it out and you sow it, um, what you want to do is to have a contract with the gods to make that fertile. So you make, put an offering, and we find these offerings in the bottoms of the grain storage pits, and you might put uh, a cow or um, a dismembered horse or even a piece of an ancestor uh, or some horse gear or something in the bottom of the pit. And then um, quite often we find that slightly later on in the year, 
um, when the harvest presumably comes in, uh, you put another offering in, which is the thank offering. So one is propitiating the deity saying, please, and the other is propitiating the deity saying, thank you. Can we come to the oral culture now, Alistair Moffat, which is something that uh, uh, is a kind of despairing aspect, really. You have this great civilization. We, we hear about we hear these fragments and shards, and they didn't write it down. We know that, that we are told that 300 stories could be remembered by some of the reciters or priests, which is quite easy to be. I used to think that was a terrible, difficult thing to believe till I got to know some very good classical actors in this country and their memories are prodigious what they can so that can be held so I believe all that but they didn't write it down so A why didn't they briefly and B more importantly where does that leave us in discovering as much about them as makes real sense I think the Romans were unusual in that they did write things down. Uh, many cultures didn't write things down, not just the Celts. I mean, I think the the, the almost obsessive nature of recording things, uh, particularly after the period of the Empire, uh, makes the Romans different. So I think the Celts were were, were not unusual in that sense. The, the difficulty, as you say, is that there's nothing on paper. But why, why do we always trust things on paper? I mean, who would, look yeah. at the, who would look at the Sun newspaper as a reliable record of anything? That's getting away from the point. <laughs> no, it's not. Why, it's, it's well, absolute, well, actually, lots of people wrote things. The, to, no. in, to, really, in effect, the Egyptians wrote things down, the Greeks wrote things well, down, the Assyrians wrote things down, the Romans wrote things down. The Celts didn't... I mean, let's take it as mm. a useful starting point. They didn't write things down. Now, so lots of people didn't, so that'll do for an answer. Now, what do you think we've lost by them not writing things down? Well, clearly, we've lost stories. Um, that's something which we don't have. I mean, you know, we haven't got a Tacitus. We don't have a Caesar. Um, we're reduced to always making comments about the Celts uh, from, from the outside, uh, often asking questions which are asked from the outside and answered from the outside. So you rarely get an absolutely authentic uh, meeting, as it were, from, from that culture. Um, because it's been remembered, that is why the languages are so important to me, mm. because they carry the stories mm. inside them. In terms of attitude, in terms of systems for thinking about the world, if you want to know more about Scotland, learn Scots Gaelic, because it will tell you about that country in a way that English can only do so partially. And the same is true in Wales and Ireland and in Manx, uh, in Man and Cornwall. Yes, sure you have an example where the, the many descriptions of, of the brownness of a cow, is it? Absolutely. I mean, yes. the, you know, the, 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 there's, a, there's a cattle owning society, a society obsessed by cows in some mm. ways. I mean, some of the earliest epics, the, the, the Tyne Bokokna, is about stealing a bull from the King of Ulster. Mm. And when people in, in, in Ireland in the, in the uh, early period want to compare their power, they count their cows. So cows are very important. And the ability to recognize 20 different colors of cow mm. is very important mm. and the language is very sophisticated in that regard. Um, it's not sophisticated in other ways, particularly uh, so far as the modern period is concerned but it also describes nature, the natural world, very, very well, because that was important too, weather was vital. Can I come to this? Are you sticking with the oral history point? Yeah, yes, can yeah, I for a while? No, please, yes, um, you, men you mentioned, Alistair mentions the, the Tyne, this, this great uh, Irish epic. Now, the, here is, is a piece of folk tradition that was remembered and remembered and passed down and modified generation after generation. Um, the 8th century AD version was eventually written down about the 12th century by, by monks um, and emasculated still further, but we do have it written down. And this is a great pan-European epic which reflects cattle raiding and, and, and all those things. Uh, the Irish, uh, modern Irish, have said, this is ours, you know, this is our, our history. Um, I think that's not quite right. It, it's European 
it's a European epic, a great European epic, uh, of which we have one Irish version. But we do have it, and it's an amazing uh, text about life in the past. That takes us to something that we've, we've held off from, but it's actually the first way that people recognise the Celts when they're writing about them, which is to do with uh, raiding their warrior qualities. I mean, that was the, the Romans spoke with awe of their warrior qualities, of their bravery, of their, they would go naked into battle, even if all the odds were against them, and they would still go. Can we just talk about that? And this, this idea of war rage and rage fit they got themselves into um, beforehand, would you like to start with that? Yes. I mean, one of the things about the Greek and Roman writers about the Celts is that clearly it would have been in a war situation where they would tend to meet them, and therefore that would be sort of uppermost in their minds. And we get this picture from the classical writers of um, groups of Celts who were much bigger, much taller, much fairer than, than the Romans, and, and different, and fought differently, and fought very much as individuals rather than as part of a, a massed army. So a, a complete contrast with the sort of very disciplined Roman forces. You get these individualistic, bombastic, um, flamboyant, flamboyant people, you know, dripping with jewellery and body paint and, and whirling you know, great swords around their heads and so on and being very, very fierce and, and frightening. And the archaeology, to an extent, does endorse this. I mean, I think it tends perhaps to distort our picture of Celts because what has survived in terms of the archaeology um, tends to be the, the, the flamboyant, the, the rich metalwork, the, the, the horse harness, the, the, the swords, the shields, the, the, this kind, the spears, that, that kind of thing. But certainly if you look at a lot of high-status graves in Britain, in, in, in Iron Age Celtic Britain, um, one of the marks of status will be that you're buried with your, your chariot, perhaps, and your sword, your spear, and that would be something very important. So, and all of that has, has come to give us this picture of this sort of war... Um, this war culture. The Strabo actually says the Celts are war mad. Yeah, but but we, can, we, can get behind, uh, we can get behind that a bit, because here again we've got the classical world looking at something they don't understand and trying to explain it. Uh, if you look at it anthropologically, what, what we're seeing is uh, endemic warfare, uh, which, which is the norm for most of the world most of the time, where um, warfare is part of the social system in, in the Celtic world. Um, and there were two forms of warfare. Um, one was the raid, where you built your own status by going out and pinching someone's cows or, or, or slaves or, or wives or something like that. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that. But the other is, is the kind of battle that, that Miranda was talking about, where the uh, two armies come together, they face each other, and they put out their heroes, and their heroes shout, uh, yell abuse, and I'm the greatest, and all the rest they of it. They boast a lot, don't they? They boast. Yeah. Then they go into they battle in front of the two armies. the origins of the work. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> ah. um, I'll see you out there with The word goes back to the... It doesn't matter. I'll talk about it. <laughs> and the, 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 so you've got these two, um, you know, the heroes fighting in front of the two armies, and then when one lot of heroes fight, they, someone dies, and they go back, and the next heroes come out, and so on. It's competition. It's controlled warfare. Sometimes it goes wrong and the two armies fight. But normally it doesn't. Normally in, in the sort of Celtic warfare, uh, it is display and heroes, just like the football matches now. Uh, football matches an exact parallel to this uh, sort of endemic warfare. It take too long. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just like David and Goliath. It's yeah, exactly yeah, exactly. the same in the old yeah, exactly. the hero, Yes, the heroes come the heroes. out and shouting yep. and doing. Mm. Yep. Uh, uh, but. The Roman, they made a different sort of... That's right. They made a different sort of they way to play the They had to modify the their techniques as soon yes, as they met it. the Romans. But mm. ask, can we talk a little bit more about this war before we 
maybe have time for one last flare. And, and the rage fit and the way of uh, sure. steaming us, which I'd like to ally with the idea of history that they had, if this doesn't seem too ridiculous, was that it all came through people acting, men and women acting. It wasn't movements. It, wasn't, it was to do with history. It was to do with yeah. this man doing that, that man doing that, that woman doing that, because women featured. We haven't got to that, I'm afraid, but women did feature very strongly in Celtic uh, That's right. affairs. That's right. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the, the comments that you get from classical writers about their bellicosity, about their, their war madness, is that they actually admire them. They admire their courage, frankly, uh, and that's something that we forget. You know, you hear talk which verges on the kind of crazy savage stuff, but these people were immensely courageous, and they were able to work themselves up into what these almost transcendent rage fits, the Fragerachen, uh, to become, in a Gallic phrase, beside themselves. People are now beside themselves with anger or whatever, and that's what the Celts tried to do so that they could nerve themselves to take on this fight or to take on this battle. Classical writers do talk about all-out charges as well, and, of course, they were still going on at Culloden in 1746, uh, and they're still going on in Ireland in 1798, you know, the all-out, flat-out charge. So this is not recklessness. This is a tradition, as it were. These are quite well-understood traditions, and it's to do, I think, with immense courage as much as anything. Maybe backed up by the fact that they felt that the, the soul of a dead person moved to another living person. That Caesar thought that that might be associated with it, but there isn't time for that. Just one thing which I'd feel terrible if I didn't just mention it, but just to mention it is even more terrible, Miranda, so I'm on a lose-lose. Um, we know that women featured powerfully there. Women could inherit property, they could inherit power, they could act as druids. We know from Boadicea or Abadica that they could ride in chariots and go to war. Is the reference to women now sort of politically correct and, and rather uh, we better mention a few women, or does it, was it really important? I think it was really important, and I think that's borne out very much by the recent discovery of the chariot grave at Wetwang, the very recent one, where um, we have a very tall, powerful woman of about 35 years old who died with her chariot. Um, she was quite clearly a woman of immense power. We know that um, from the classical writers that there were women like Boudicca, like Cartimandia in the first century AD, who were independent, powerful women in their own right. I think it was probably um, not the norm, but certainly the archaeological evidence shows that women could... Um, go right through society in a way which they couldn't in the Greek and Roman world. And that's what's important. The, the difference between the, the position of women in Celtic society and in classical society is, is very profound. With, in, in Greek and Roman society, women couldn't even be citizens. It's quite clear that in Britain and in France, women could be very powerful and very important. Would you agree with that, Barry? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and particularly in Britain strangely enough. Uh, we've, or, or rather, yes. we've got more evidence for yes. it in Britain than in any other part of the Celtic world. Yes. Briefly, have you any accounting for that, Alison? I think it's basically because as far as the Celtic, uh, Celtic society was concerned, although there were slaves, although there were kings, although there were priests, um, there's unquestionably a sense where it's a community, and that's still survives. Um, you know, the, 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 the Protestant religion that's been very powerful in the West has rather suppressed the position of women in recent times. But in the past, I think that wasn't the case. Well, thank you all very much. I enjoyed that. I'm sure a lot of people listening did. They'll tell us if they didn't, anyway. Uh, <laughs> and, and you, Miranda, and uh, Alistair. And we'll be back next week uh, discussing virtue with the philosophers Roger Crisp, Miranda Fricker, and Galen Strawson. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. 
You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.